The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwire.org.
Thank you. 
Good morning. Ah, it's Thanksgiving weekend. A friend asked me yesterday if it was a good day. I told him it was a great day for us, but the turkey didn't like it much. <laughs> I'm sure that you, like us, <clears throat> had a special time of enumerating your blessings and thanking God for each one of them. We typically think of things like another year of health or a warm home or our family members, the freedoms that we enjoy, and of course the food. And on and on the list goes. Different for everybody. Sometimes the memories are not so mundane, like having survived an accident or a health crisis. Maybe for having the strength to have made it through this last year. And perhaps asking for a continuing grace for the challenges that are coming up in the coming year. Whatever was and is on your list, it's obviously very individual and personal. For me, I began thanking God for all the people who have poured into my life to contribute to make me the man that I am. Of course, that included my parents and my brother, teachers that I can't even remember their names, but I still remember the lessons they taught me, and close personal friends that I made as a teen. And for some of those ones whose friendships have spanned the years, ones like Ginger Peterson, and others of you know Jack Batson, Rick Catteridge. In some cases, those friends' parents poured into me as well. Still others that became additional sets of parents to me and eventually became adopted grandparents to my children. Most importantly were those who helped to shape me and teach me in spiritual things. Men like Kenneth Broad and Dean Overton and several others who have mentored and taught me through the years. And of course, the one who has been by my side, helping to shape and sharpen me for almost five decades, my precious wife, Debbie. I shared with the young man just yesterday how little things seem insignificant at the time. But one stacked on another have huge impacts. Through my years, I have listened to probably thousands of sermons and lessons, read countless books. I can't remember a single one of them specifically, but collectively, they've impacted me in great ways. Undergirding all of these experiences was the guidance of the Lord. All of these people have poured hours into me, but in Psalm 139, the psalmist acknowledges that he, God, knit me together in my mother's womb. He told Jeremiah that he had a purpose for him even before he was conceived. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul reminds us that we are God's handiwork and have been created to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. And Jesus himself acknowledged that he could do nothing good on his own. God created us with free choice. 
And I'm glad that he did. Otherwise, we'd just be robots. But unlike Jesus, I don't always, or perhaps I should honestly say, I don't very often make the right choices and do things exactly or even close to the way that he directs. Ever since the garden, man has been making choices on his own and making a mess of it. And that's called sin. And I know that's not a very popular word these days, but that's what God calls it. And sin separates us from him. So how do we restore fellowship with him so that we can get back on track and accomplish those good works that he has ordained? Through the blood. In Leviticus 17.11, God proclaims, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Did you catch that? God has given us the blood as a gift. And centuries later, Jesus proclaimed that this is his blood freely given for us to atone for our sins. Like those countless sermons that I have not been able to specifically remember, I take these emblems each week to remind me of his sacrifice for me. Each time I partake of these emblems, I have different circumstances and I approach the occasion in unique ways. And cumulatively, they humble me and they remind me of my weaknesses, my flesh, my sinful nature. And they bring into sharper focus his perfection and the eternal covenant that he's brought me into. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, thank you for all the various things you have allowed into our lives and those things you have ordained in our lives and how you have shaped us to this point. Help us today and each day that you grant us life to allow you to continue to remind us of the gift of your own blood to restore us to at-oneness with you. And then we ask you to empower us to accomplish all of the good works you have prepared for us before you call us home. Through the power of his blood and in his name we pray.
is the root of all heartache. It's been attributed to Shakespeare. Uh, Factcheck.com says actually he didn't say it, but that's a powerful statement. Can our expectations set us up for failure? I want to jump right into it. We're in this series called Storyline, the Parables of Jesus we're going to talk about the workers in the vineyard today. It's in Matthew chapter 20. If you want to start moving there, uh, Matthew chapter 20 is where we're going to be. And I'm going to read from the uh, Christian Standard Version. We're going to look at unmet expectations. Now, most of us know the basic format of this story. Uh, you've got some uh, workers and uh, they're upset about their wages. You've got their attitude of the workers. You've got the ways of God, and all of these crash together in this powerful teaching. We're going to stay in the parables through the holidays, and, and you might say, how come? Because I think in the stories that Jesus told, you can learn the story of Jesus. You can see his character being developed. Join me in Matthew chapter 20. If you're online or on the radio, welcome to Central Christian Church in Portales. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Version here. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius. Now pause for a second. Most of you, if you have a study Bible, it'll say something about a denarius underneath there. It's a, it's a coin, and it was basically a day's wage. So these were day laborers, okay? They would, uh, they would get this coin, and that would be a day's worth of wages. So pick back up in verse 2. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go to my vineyard, and I'll give you whatever is right. 
So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out and did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Well, because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. In verse 8, when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, Call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner, These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. In verse 13, he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have that right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. We often call this the parable of the vineyard workers. But what if it's misnamed? What if it's not really the parable of the vineyard workers? What if it is... The parable of the complaining day laborers. What if it's the parable of the unfair vineyard owner? What if it's the parable of the generous master? What if it's just entitled Lessons in Employee Management 101? Now, there is an easy sermon here. And it's super basic. God is the landowner. The Jews were the first ones hired. And then the tax collectors. And then late in the day were the Gentiles. And they all got paid. And if that was your sermon out of the deal, then you would not be incorrect. I think all of that data is correct. I wish we'd go deeper, though. I'd like us to look in and maybe see a little bit more than just heaven later on but how we act in the kingdom right now. Now, this one does talk about heaven, and I think that's important. It starts out, the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. What is your dot, dot, dot? What if you made the kingdom of heaven? What would the kingdom of heaven look like if you made it? Would it be on a beach somewhere with... The sun beaming down, but it's not too hot, and you're in a beach chair, and you've got a cold umbrella drink next to you, and the waves are lapping at your feet, and you've got a book in your hand. And, oh, that's a good day. Would that be your dot, dot, dot? Maybe, maybe it's on a ski run somewhere. It's just fresh powder, and it's just you, and you've got your headphones, and you're shushing, and you're slaloming, and it's just, it's just right. Maybe that's your idea of heaven. Maybe your heaven is Disneyland and a five-day fast pass and, and uh, rooms at the Grand Californian. That's the one right next to it. So you can go back and forth and you've got the free food pass and it's 75 degrees. And for some reason, everybody on earth forgot about Disneyland that day and nobody's there. It's just you and a couple of hundred people instead of a couple hundred thousand like it usually is. Happiest place on earth, my foot. All right. But if you and I were writing the story, 
What would heaven look like? How would we make heaven? Did you notice the very first thing that Jesus says? The kingdom of heaven is going out to hire workers. What Work? What? Wait a minute. I'm going to have to work? <laughs> the whole idea of heaven is not working. Now, before we go any further with this, I want to be very, very clear, okay? I do not believe this is talking about working my way to heaven, all right? I want to be very, very clear that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not that any of us could boast. Can we all agree on that fact, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're just exploring some metaphors here. That the kingdom of heaven is like work. But when you are saved, you don't work to be saved. When you are saved, there is work to be done. What are the expectations that we have of the kingdom? And are the expectations we have realistic? The kingdom of heaven is a lot like work. These are, when he's speaking, he's speaking to people that are under Roman rule, that have been oppressed, that have been abused, that live in fear. They are heavily taxed. Some say 30%, some say 50% tax rate. These people are living every day, hand to mouth. They're struggling. And he comes out, the kingdom of heaven is going to be a lot like work. Don't you think Peter wanted to pull him aside and say, hey, Jesus, I don't know what school of evangelism you went to, but this ain't cutting it, all right? Uh, these people don't want to hear about more work. They want to hear about a re relief from work. What if Jesus is trying to teach us a healthy expectation of him. And I believe that if we're going to thrive in the kingdom of God, we have to have a mindset that says there's work to be done, that we have stuff to do. And it's not just working in kids' own and making coffee every once in a while. There is a lot of work to be done in this world. If I said our world is broken and divided, would anybody argue with me? I don't know if it's ever been this broken and divided. Paul tells us in one place that God reconciled us to Himself through Jesus, and He has given us the ministry of reconciliation, of pulling others back to Jesus. I love this quote from Duncan Campbell. He says, The church is to be the firefighters of the spiritual world, not a hobby to be done when we get around to it, but a mission to break into places where lives are being burned and rescue people. I wonder if we've lost the urgency of the gospel, that that's our job collectively. If your house was burning down, would you stand in the front yard and go, man, I hope that stops. Oh, the wind's picking up? Oh, good. The wind will blow it out. That'll, that'll help it. Is that what you would do? I mean, if it was your house, would you not be screaming and running? You'd run in and make sure the kids are out and the dogs and get the pictures. And you'd be getting all of the stuff. You'd grab hoses. You'd be yelling for help. You'd do anything you could. Do we realize how broken our world is? And that's God has called us to be in that ministry of reconciliation. He's not calling us. He's not giving us to a ticket to an all-inclusive resort. He's calling us and inviting us to join Him in the vineyard. We've got work to do. Now, to me, the read between the lines is 
that God intends for us to work His vineyard. He intends for those chosen, those called by God, that those that are followers of Christ, to be tending to other people. To bring, in a, bring a hopeful spirit into your workplace. To be inviting people, inviting people to church, inviting people into your homes, to go where the broken are. He's called us to do that. To not make excuses. I love that Scott talked about mentors and people that impacted him. We've got to be those people. People, we've got to be those ones that are impacting others. I wonder if we've lost, though, the urgency of the gospel. That we've kind of got lackadaisical about it. Well, we go to church, Don, isn't that good enough? Well, I sing some songs and I listen to Caleb, isn't that good enough? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been bored in your faith? Now, you may be saying, well, that's a dumb question. Maybe you, you feel like you haven't been challenged. Maybe it's, it's not pushing you. You're just kind of stuck in a rut of saying the same things and doing the same things. I wonder, is it maybe because you aren't digging into the Word? Are you snacking on God's Word? Well, Don, I get an email every morning. I get a text that's a devotional. And I read that. And I listen to Caleb when I'm driving to work. Isn't that good enough? You know what? That's great. But no, it's not enough. It's not enough. That is good. And that's a great starting point. But we need to be digging in. Now, I'll be honest. I wish my spiritual walk was an app. I wish there was an app I could buy, I could download. Every morning I woke up and it handed me a cup of coffee and said, uh, boom, there's your Jesus for the day. You're in, you're in good shape. Man, I would love that. I would pay for that app. All right, That would be easy. I would love that kind of release of that. But i got to tell you, the women and men in my life with a healthy faith have always worked at it. The people I know that mentor me, that impact me, are people that have a healthy habit of being in God's Word. They daily go to the vineyard. They are consistently feeding on His Word, not snacking on it, diving deep into God's Word, into concepts and, and passages and, and learning. This quote from Rick Ashley still wrecks me every time I see it, that anybody that I see that is Spirit-filled has a life that is permeated. With the Word of God. The verse that the Wayne read earlier, draw near to God, He will draw near to you. But there is an effort on our parts. You see that? We can't just walk in and it happens to us. We have to be the, the mover in that direction. In fact, that whole verse said, resist the devil, devil he will flee from you. That's step one. And, and drawing near to God. It's going to take some work. Now, you might be thinking, that's a lot to be reading in between the lines. Yes, it is. But I, I want us to understand in this, uh, the read between the lines in this parable, God is speaking to us in a powerful way. Now, I told you one of the big parts of this is the workers and, and their wages. The, but what is the real problem here? What is the real problem for these workers. I submit it's unmet expectations. 
Let's be honest. The, the money is huge to this story. It is absolutely key. You need to know what a denarius is. You need to know what they're getting. It's, it's central to this story. But in verse 8, the owner gets the foreman and he says, you go pay everybody now. You call all the workers over. But you start with the guys I hired at 5 and you pay them. And then you go backwards all through the day. Do you realize if he would have just paid them as they were hired, we wouldn't even have this story? He could have fixed all of the problems, just paid it you know, in that order. But we didn't write this story. You see, when the first ones saw, when they saw what the first guys got paid, or the, the guys that got hired first saw what the guys that were paid last They felt entitled to more. We deserve more. We earned more. And then when they don't get it, they start saying, well, this is not fair. It's not equitable. It's, it's, I didn't get equal. But whose choice is it? It's the master's choice to do with what he wants to do. And do you realize the landowner never lied? He never misrepresented. He never, he never. He didn't lie. The workers got caught in the same thing that you and I get caught in. I call it the comparison trap. We start comparing to other people. We start comparing to other situations. And we think we deserve more. They thought they were entitled to more because they saw the others. Not because they saw what they had done. They saw the others. You see, entitlement. Everybody say entitlement. Entitlement is a hard word in our culture. It, it really is a struggle in our culture. It, I'm not trying to be political, but we look at that word and we see politics and we see struggles. But entitlement will warp our view of God, and it will honestly warp our view of ourself. The standards of man do not apply in kingdom economics. And we got to get this. And I think we all kind of know it in the back of our heart, but in the back of our head, but we don't get it right up at the front. So you say, what is entitlement? Entitlement is me saying I deserve more or you owe me. And sadly, we've seen people in church that have lived in that you owe me mentality. In fact, you probably know people that have left the church because they worked for God and something bad happened and they didn't get the healing or they didn't get the job or they didn't get the relationship that they wanted and God didn't come through for them. And so they said, I deserve better. And they bailed. Anybody? You hearing what I'm saying? Some people get that entitlement. I'm at church. God owes me. You see, sometimes we're more confident in the work we've done than in what God has done in us. The workers, they were more confident in their work. They expected more. Now, they have a lot to say about what they've done. But I want you to zoom out for a second and look at the context of what is happening here. What is happening here, if you look back in the previous chapter, you'll see that Jesus is in the countryside. If you look at the end of chapter 19, it's the, the interchange that he has with what we call the rich young ruler. Anybody remember that one? A guy comes to Jesus. What do I got to do to be saved? Well, you got to follow the commandments. <laughs> I've done that. I got this, man. I, I got it handled. And Jesus looks in his heart and he says, then sell everything you own and give it to the poor. 
He gives that call to that guy. He doesn't give that call to everybody. He gave it to that guy because he knew his heart. And, and he was talking about priorities. He was dealing, and last week we dealt with priorities too. But they, that guy had his priorities all wrong. And then he tells this story. And in verse 12, in the New Living Translation, it says, You have paid them what you paid us. But in the NIV and in this Christian Standard Version, listen to verse 12. These last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us. Did you hear the phrase there? It's different than you paid them what you paid us. You've made them equal to us. They are just right there. They're declaring that their entitlement, that they deserve more. They're worth more. They've based their worth on themselves. Some of you are jumping ahead of me on the, the application to the church now. <laughs> we deserve more. It's my right. We've been here longer, Don. We get to make the decisions. You hearing me? Well, I worked for it and I deserve that thing. Well, those people have baggage. Why are we letting them in? They've made mistakes. We misunderstand the economy of God. When we start comparing, we lose our contentment. I, I contend that any other day they would have been happy with the denarius because they were day laborers. In fact, a lot of historians will tell us slaves had a better situation because they knew what they were getting than a Jewish day laborer. They had no idea when their next meal was going to come. They got a denarius, that means we eat today, kids, that's it. You know, I have no idea what tomorrow is. They didn't have social platforms, they didn't have universal health care. Even the slaves would have it better. See, when we compare our situation to other people, we lose sight of contentment. But i got to tell you, I think the biggest problem in this story with you and me, or it certainly is in me, is this offends our sense of fair. We're Americans. We are about fair, all right? We want to be fair. And how is it that in a decent fair market economy, a guy that works one hour is equal to a guy that works 12 hours? I mean, that's just not fair. That's just not right. If the guy worked one hour gets a denarius, the guy that works 12 hours, he's got to be middle management by now. I mean, he's got to be up on the fry guy. You know, he's climbing the McDonald's ladder by lunchtime. Or you know what I mean? He's... The reality check here is this parable flies in the face of everything that we think is fair and equitable. But friends, we've got to get this, and we've got to get it hard Kingdom economy has never been based on what you've done. It's never. It's not based on how much you've done. It's based on His overwhelming grace. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God chases me down, fights till I'm found. He leaves the 99 to go after you and me. That's what grace is. Grace is not, nor will it ever be, fair. We don't need to talk that way. But I've got to be honest, I think any number of labor lawyers would have jumped on this case. The workers might have a point. Hey, we worked in the heat. We produced more. 
we did all of this. And so when they saw that they were being misrepresented and something wasn't working right, what did they do? They started grumbling. Question. How often do you grumble at God? Do you have a habit of complaining at God? It may not be out loud. It may be under your breath. How come they got a new car? Why don't I ever get the romance that I see in their life? Why did he get a raise? When... When are my kids going to be picked and get to play? Folks, I'm not complaining at you. I'm not griping at anyone. If anyone, I'm griping at myself. But to grumble is to insult the goodness of God. It is a consummate act of arrogance and ingratitude, one that I have done dozens if not hundreds of times. Now, sometimes we'll church it up. And we'll call it righteous indignation. We'll get upset about something out there in the world and we'll bow up our back and say, we're not going to take it anymore. And, and I think that we need to be people that stand up. But let's be honest, how many times is it because we didn't get our way? We didn't get it the way we want it. And it offends my sense of security or sense of how, what I want. And I start whining and complaining. Is my habit a habit of complaining? That goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And Moses and in the the desert and they're out there a day. And man, we're going to die out here. You brought us out here to die. You know, we, that's in our blood. And we, are, we are complainers at the core. And maybe God is calling us to look at that and say, don't do that anymore. There's another lesson that's in between here. Two, that I want to share with you, something Franklin has been say, saying to me for some time about a book he read. To be clear is kind. Clear is kind. To be clear about your expectations, to be clear about your intentions, is, is being kind to another person. If the owner had been clear at the beginning, we wouldn't have any conflict, would we? If you've been with us in this parable study, one of the things I always try to do is I try to humanize it and make it, well, why did they do that? Why, you know, and it's not a real story. <laughs> it didn't really happen. It's supposed to challenge us. I still think there's a powerful lesson there in how you and I deal with others. Be clear. Don't mislead others. Be very, very specific. If you're dating someone, Make sure that you are clear about the expectations. What you think ought to happen, what you, where you think this is going. Don't, don't play people. Hey, if you're married, be clear. Don't expect the other person to read your mind. Can I get an oh yeah or an amen or a uh-huh from somebody? Don't expect the other people to just guess. We need to be clear about what we're saying and about how we're doing it but i want you to see the the master's response do you see how calm the master's response is hey can i do what i want it's my money the the landowner seems to be really unmoved by the complaints it makes me wonder how often i whine at god and is he really moved by all my complaints he just reminded them of the deal hey you and i made a deal for a denarius 
If he chose to be generous, that was his privilege. It was his vineyard. He could do with it what he wanted. He didn't choose fair. He chose generous. And it reminds me of this slide from last week that humility is letting God choose His kingdom, let him, God run His kingdom His way. We don't get to pick who gets in and who doesn't. We trust Him. Now this parable is full of stuff. You've got the workers and their wages. You've got the workers and their attitude. But this parable illustrates the ways of God. And that they are very much beyond you and I. It goes against our sense of creating heaven, our sense of how we deal with each other. We want fair. He didn't do fair. He did grace. Did you hear the chorus of that song you sang? So I yield to you and to your careful hand. Have we yielded very much? When I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me a vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. Friends, grace is always overwhelming to those of us that are unworthy for it. And it will always be offensive to people that are entitled. Do you realize this parable doesn't finish with an explanation? It finishes with a proverb. And it's the exact same proverb he finished the previous story. The rich young ruler walked away and he said, Sadly, the last are going to be first and the first are going to be last. Friends, that's not just a cute saying to put on your wall. That's a core value. That we have got to be people that put him above us. That put them above us. That we put God's ways above my ways. This parable, it... It's tough because it asks you to look, are you a complainer? Do you have a habit of complaining? If so, give that to God. Do you have a habit of entitlement? Do we look at some people and say, well, I wish they'd get their act together so they could be cool like me? Or do we, do we, do we look at the hurting, burning world out there and we need to go rescue people? What we really need is we need Him to make us His vessel. That's your challenge today. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.